What's up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk, where I'm joined by Gabriel Kaplan, where we talk about himself, his investing journey, Beyond Returns, his content creation channel, the macro environment, the massive amount of inflation, how he's preparing himself for a potential recession. He's recently got under contract of a house, and so we discuss that process, the negotiation phase, and how that is going, um, and some of the struggles that he's gone through with the initial per- purchase. Then we get into stock investing, uh, how he researches a stock. We take a dive into some of his holdings and much, much more. But as always, this is not financial advice. So please, please, please do not take anything said in this podcast as financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly mine and Gabe's opinion and should be taken as such. And this podcast is strictly for entertainment purposes only and should be only taken as entertainment. So let's get into the rip. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. But first, before we get into it, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Financial Stock Data at financialstockdata.com. Use promo code GCI as in Green Candle Investments and get your first month of their premium service for free. And so that premium service, you can research any kind of stock, add them to your watch list, put them on your radar. If anything kind of changes uh, in that stock, you know, maybe a certain metric hits, uh, you're looking for a certain PE ratio or something like that, financial stock data will send you a notification and then you can determine whether or not, you know, you want to buy or sell that stock. So like I said, financialstockdata.com, promo code GCI. So be sure to check them out. And now to get into the episode, uh, I have a very special guest, Gabriel Kaplan. Gabe, how are we doing today? Good, you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So uh, let's get into it. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I think we found I found you on Common Stock. Uh, you have a lot of great, uh, you know, great posts and everything like that on there. Uh, but yeah, let's let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How you got into investing? And uh, yeah, I want to say I, like, I got into investing after my first job. Uh, my first job was in investment banking. I worked at Merrill Lynch before they became uh, Bank of America. Um, it was that summer, uh, 2007, where I got the internship. Um, and then they offered me a full-time job. Started in New York. Financial crisis happened. Um, I got uh, basically... I don't. There's a little story here for most international people. They don't know it, but if you worked um, and you were about to get a visa, a work visa in the US, uh, working for an American bank and they received TARP money, that was prohibited under TARP. Like they could not issue new H-1B. So everybody was shifted towards their home office. I grew up in South America, but uh, my passport was Swedish. Um, and so they shifted me to London. Um, I was supposed to go to one group. I ended up in another. I didn't like it. So I ended up fi- trying to find a job um, in the US, eventually found one, moved back to New York. And so after I moved back, I started investing my, you know, there was less scrutiny, less uh, rules about what you could do um, outside of, um, of, you know, banking. Um, And so I started my investment account and I started investing. It's a great time because it was post financial crisis. So it's been upwards and onwards since then. Um, And I started my own registered investment advisor back then. Um, I was working for like a small, uh, family office slash um, 
kind of like an administrator for hedge funds. So um, they, I got permission to open up my own investment advisory firm. Uh, I was doing it part time for ten years, and then finally um, was able, you know, to get to get enough assets to do it full time. So for That's anybody awesome. who, yeah, so for anybody who wants to manage money and doesn't want to start that, you know, there's two routes, right? The fund and um, just managing individual accounts. If you want to manage individual accounts, um, uh, let them know. Contact me. I'm happy to, to give give them some guidance. There we go. That's awesome. So uh, let's take it back a little bit. So you kind of mentioned that you started investing or getting into it based on your first job. Um, was there something kind of, you know, maybe growing up or something that you can kind of think back to that, uh, you know, really was like, okay, you know, I need to do this in order to grow my wealth? Or was it just kind of like, hey, it was uh, this, this job kind of, you know, fell in your lap or, you know, whatever, it, it kind of worked out. And that's kind of how you got into it. Um, was there something that you could kind of like point back to that you, you know, you can kind of think like, okay, well, because this happened, this is why I started to invest. I'll tell you one thing. The first memory I have from investing was watching like CNN or something like that at the with a dot com bust. That's the first memory I have. I was always interested interested in investing, but um, I studied engineering in college, and my goal was to work for the defense companies in the U.S. But little did I know that you needed to be a U.S. citizen or a green card holder. And so next to that booth where the you know defense companies were where it was was some banks and the banks had no restrictions who they would hire you know, at that time. And so I, it felt, kind of fell in my lap. Um, as most people post-college, I, I would say most people don't really have an idea. Um, and that's why I would say most people don't like their first jobs. Uh, <laughs> but once you, I guess once you get the first job, you have more an idea of which direction you want to do or go. Um, I would say investment banking is not, a uh, a place I would have chosen, um, but it it was definitely an eye opener um, to the investment world. It was also an eye opener to how you value stocks, how you look at them, um, what different companies, how different companies look at different companies. Because that's I, I guess the essence of investment banking is trying to pitch companies to buy other companies um, or do some sort of transaction. Um, and so I, I think. That was an you know an experience in itself, and that really helped me with you know with investments going forward. That's awesome stuff, and yeah, from what I hear, uh, you know, the especially early on in investment banking, they work you like a dog too. So um, good on you for for making it through, through all that, because uh, from from all accounts that I, that I've heard, it's, it's well, definitely not easy work or anything like that. I, you know, it, it, I'll be very clear. I did one year, um, and so most people do two years. The problem is, is that you know, I got to London, and there were three you know, the first wave of layoffs, then the second wave of layoffs. And I wasn't chosen for the second wave. And at the second wave, I was like, if there's another wave, I'm it. Like, this is me. <laughs> you can't survive three. That's like, that's very lucky. And apparently I survived the third, but at that point I already had a job offer and all my friends were in New York. Um, and so I just, I just flew back. There you go. Well, hey, now, and now you're here. So um, you started putting out content, investing real related content. Beyond Returns is your YouTube channel. So for everybody out there, you should go check that out. But what is your, uh, I guess, overall goal? Like what, what did you, what kind of drove you to start putting out content based on investing and, and all that kind of stuff? 
I think, so I work alone and the problem with working alone more or less is that you don't get feedback. And so it's, it's pretty good sometimes to just put yourself out there, put content out there, get feedback, get uh, good questions, um, uh, get pushback. Uh, it, it's that, it's that back and forth that really gets you to the right answer. And so if you don't have that, then you just have to find other ways. Uh, beyond returns is more like a, a fun hobby. I would say, um, it's, you know, I do it with another co-host. It's Robinson Crawford. He's another financial advisor. He's much more of the planning uh, person, um, more op op opposite to me. He believes more in like efficient theory. Like he's, you know, he's more of an index person and more of an active um, investment. So we have like a little bit of opposing thoughts there. And so I think that's, it's good to, to bounce ideas off him. Um, but it, in general, if you're working alone, it's it's i think it's like you must get pushback from your ideas and investments like otherwise you know you're you're handicapping yourself yeah no i agree with you 100 percent. and i think the cool thing about you know the time that we're in now is we're having a lot of platforms pop up left and right uh you know uh that allow you to post your ideas and not only that like kind of get criticism critiques uh, however you want to word it. And, uh, you know, really, there's a lot of sharing ideas left and right. And so, you know, I know you're on Twitter and, and in common stock. How do you kind of view those platforms and view, you know, sharing your ideas and the overall like, you know, sharing of investment ideas back and forth? Because I know, like, you know, common stock, it seems like it's, it's pretty positive, because it's more long form. But, you know, FinTwit can be kind of a uh, you know, a yeah. ruthless place as well, too. So kind of how do you view those two platforms and how do you view like sharing the inf uh, investing information like from peer to peer from people you, you really don't even know? Yeah, I, I would say before I even start, you know, downloading the 10K or anything, I, I look for other people who have, who have done the research. And so I will actually go to Google and search the Substack domain and I'll search for the ticker, right? That's the first thing I do. And then um, I ask, anybody on Twitter or, or like I, tr I tried to put, push, you know, search there too, if anybody has done any work on any specific stock. Um, I think those places are great. Um, but the more intimate communities are, I would say common stock. I actually am part of some discord groups, um, that are more of like value investors, not the pump and dump crypto that is, uh, you know, commonly associated with discord. Uh, <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and I have uh, some, you know, some people I talk to regularly, but I think overall, if you, if you want to like put, separate the social media aspect, it's like, you have Twitter is like so open, it's so big, everybody's on there. Um, you have actually pretty famous investors, pretty active on Twitter. And there's a ton of, you know, hedge fund analysts on there that aren't using their real name, obviously. Um, so, so you know that there is a group of smart people on there. You just have to develop somehow a relationship and it's difficult. I would say it's not easy to just like come in and, you know, develop a relationship. Plus I'm, I'm listed there with my name. I don't, there's a lot of people who are anonymous. Um, I, overall, I think these are all good things, but at the end of the day, you just have to do your own work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing, right? So, uh, you know, no matter who you follow, influencers, whatever, hedge fund managers, I think like at the end of the day, it really comes down to your own personal conviction 
in those investments because if you don't have personal conviction, it's a lot easier to sell at the first time of the dip and maybe miss out on some like long-term returns or, or, or something along those lines. Uh, you know, it, it definitely helps you sleep a little easier if you have uh, a lot of conviction on those uh, on your own personal investments. And on that note, uh, let's get into a little bit of the macro. Uh, so we don't have to take like a huge dive into the overall macro environment if you don't want to. But, uh, you know, I think talking about the stock market now, it's pretty hard to avoid talking about uh, the overall macro environment. So last month we had an 8.6% uh, CPI print. There's been massive amounts of inflation from anything and everything from gasoline to food prices, uh, even from investable assets to, to homes and stock markets, but they've also kind of seen a recent dip. Uh, kind of how do you foresee, uh, you know, this playing out and, uh, you know, how are you kind of positioning yourself based on, you know, the current macro environment? So the, I have one lesson that I learned from all, you know, the, the previous corrections, I would say, and it is that, um, most of the times when I did change the portfolio, I ended up and I analyzed what would have done, it, it, what would have happened if I didn't make any changes, I would have been better off not making any changes. And so this time around, it's not like I'm doing any changes. I am changing the portfolio, but I'm just changing the composition. So I used to have way more unprofitable tech coming into this. Um, and I think it was like January, I started to cut them, cut them loose. I had Cloudflare, I had, I had a bunch of stock. Um, stocks that that were you know unprofitable tech i'm left with maybe four of them and i regret them <laughs> yeah i think it's like i have twilio i have c limited uh i bought it pretty early on so my cost basis is still you know profitable there I, and i have i have a couple i have two more i think that are big um mercado libre and then i have um let's see what else is in the, in the losing put here i have my portfolio open Oh, and I have PayPal. PayPal is not profitable, let's say, but it, it was it was a big loser and it was a big mistake that I made. Um, I bought it too expensive. Um, so I I do I do keep some of these these companies. Uh, I I think there are in the long run. Um, you know, the, there is a certain element there that I think is gonna is is very different from some of the other companies. I would say Twilio specifically um has a huge let's say potential for being into in, integrated into every single app in the world um and they're just adding on more services i would say you know if i look back my 10 years of investing i missed out on a couple of big tech stocks and the reason is is because i did not expand my view my view in terms of like okay these are the services i don't believe the services based the valuation today is you know is justifies these amounts of services in the long run. The issue is that most of the time they have a core user base and they're able to add on services to that core user base and expand and grow much faster than, you know, the, the typical company out there for long periods of time. And that, that justifies evaluation. In fact, like that's the big miss. Um, and I think you just have to identify which companies are going to be able to do that and then trust that management will be able to deliver. And that's where you will get the the great returns. But the caveat is that you have to get into, a, you have to go, get in the company at a good multiple. Um, I was very early on Twitter. I'm sorry, on, on Twilio. I was very early on um, C Limited. Those are the reasons why I kept them. 
um I could have easily sold them for a much higher profit in the long run, you know, a couple of months ago, but it is what it is. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I view the macro environment affecting my portfolio, the macro environment in general, inflation will go up. Uh, I think the U S will rise, you know, rise their, raise their interest rates, um, much faster than the rest of the world. I think as a result, this is like always happens, um, more money will flow into the U S dollar, U S dollar will become stronger. Um, you will have, um, you know, credit stress in emerging markets and in frontier European markets as well. We were starting to see that. Um, you will have currency issues in in foreign markets, specifically the ones that aren't commodity based. If commodity prices go up, um, technically speaking, if the U.S. dollar goes up, commodities should start to level off because um, demand in the world is not. Like in in dollars, but that you know the, the purchase of the commodity is in dollars, so you know there's a, there's an adjustment there that needs to be done, and so at the end of the day, I think you, the U.S. will be still the best market to be invested in. Um, I just think that um, yeah, yeah, you just have to be really careful, careful with emerging markets um, in in these periods of time. Like every single time the U.S. had um, a period of of um, raising rates, you had like after that you have the a couple of years of of difficult times for emerging markets. It happened in in the 1980s when the interest rates went up to like 20%. Then in the middle of the 80s, so like a couple of years after, you had Latin American defaults. Um, it happened in 1998 um, or the, going into 2000, you had uh, raising rates after um, you know at the end, at the tail end before the dot com uh, bust, and then in two thousand one you had the Brazilian default. Um, uh, so like there is there is like a a a cycle that we all know that hap- you know that has traditionally happened, and so we just have to be very careful, I guess, um, with that. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of like extraneous factors, you know, here where you, you kind of described it right. So it's like the overall macro is kind of causing stock market and and uh, assets as like a whole to kind of go down. And, you know, like there's some stuff that you can't avoid and there's some that you just can't avoid because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, the overall macro environment's just making the all assets kind of tank, right? So yeah. uh, multiples you- are compressing and that's a fact. You know, you, if you look at total return and the reason why return has been so poor, it's multiple compression. It hasn't been earnings. Um, uh, I would say earnings adjust, like earning guidance adjustments. And that's my fear, right? Like the next quarter, like if we, when they start reporting, they're going to update guidance. If we have a, a guidance that's much poorer, we're going to have a, a second down leg um, until that gets fixed. And that is, I think, I, I know that might happen. Uh, I haven't right right now decided how to prepare for it. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of these situations too, is like kind of fluid, right? So it's like, you have to be, uh, you know, a little bit reactionary, uh, you know, have a plan, so to speak, but also, you know, understand what's kind of going on. So it's definitely not an easy time to start investing right now. Um, but you know, and also I, I, I personally kind of like to invest in companies that I believe in long-term a little bit more when it, when they're going down opposed to, to going up. Right. Cause I, I just feel that I'm getting them at like a cheaper evaluation than, you know, maybe when uh, I'm catching it, you know, closer near to the top. So, um, you know, overall, I think, 
uh, we're in some some treacherous waters here, but uh, you know it makes for a good conversation and uh, you know things uh, to kind of um, you know just a lot of research going on and, and kind of figuring it out that way. But let's move on to the uh, to to my next question. You mentioned that you uh, you know when we talked previously that you recently purchased a house or you're like in the process of purchasing a house. Um, so after kind of like all that we, we talked about, uh, you know, with the inflationary environment, all that kind of stuff, like what kind of made you pull the trigger now, uh, opposed to maybe earlier or, or waiting a little bit for, you know, uh, whether or not the, the housing market's going to crash or something along those lines. So we're in the, in the final, we're actually negotiating the contract now. So it's, um, it's a little bit, um, I would say the current owner has some demands. We have some other they have, I would, let me put it this way. The, the, the property was advertised a certain way and then they changed their demands for a little bit more strenuous um, and we have to adapt. Um, so we actually, there's some of these conversations going on the closing date and they want to rent the house for some period of time before they move out. And so the, the timing of that is not, we're not getting an agreement right now. So I'm not sure if we're going to end up closing. Um, so that's where I am. But in terms of, you know, I, I guess the big question I get all the time is, okay, I, I, I want to buy a house. I, I haven't decided where or, or when, um, but it's going to be in the next two years. Like, how should I invest my money? I think it's, you know, it, it's do as I say, now what I do. What I did was I invested the money and the moment I, I know I'm going to close or like I'm very close to it, I sell. Um, and the reason is because I've gone through this process now for a year and a half. And, uh, and if I wouldn't have, you know, if I wouldn't have the money invested, I would have been worse off. Right. Um, even with this, you know, downturn here. Um, so, but from a financial planning perspective, it's always, you should have the money in cash, you should have the money in cash, don't risk it. Like, you know, have the money in cash. I think there's a balance there. I don't just don't know what the balance is. I think it depends on the time. Like if you're, if we've had already a correction of 30%, is it safer than before to invest? I think so. Um, if you are looking for a house now and interest rates are going up and the prospect of you getting a house is, um, I would say it's like less and less certain, then maintain the money invested. It's a difficult, it, like it's very, depends on each person's financial situation specifically and the confidence they have in getting a house. In the area that I am in, which is Westchester, New York, I, I do not think, it's the same thing in Manhattan. When prices, when I would say prices go down of properties, there's less deals. The prices really don't go down. The, the owners have enough, um, I would say, money to decide when to sell. They're not forced sellers. And so you really never have a stressed market here. You just have less deals happening. And so I think that's a big difference between um, other markets and these like ultra high, um, I'd say very wealthy areas. It's just that the, the seller is never in a point of stress. And that's kind of unfortunate to my part right now. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, yeah. Understood. Yeah. So you're still kind of like, I guess, in the... Uh, like negotiation phase and, and all that kind of stuff too, which is kind of interesting. Um, so uh, I guess overall, how has the process been? You said you've been kind of going through this for like, you know, maybe a year and a half or so. Like how overall, how has that process been for you? Because, you know, I, I think 
we're in like like I've said before, like a little bit of an interesting time where a lot of people are either coming to the age where they're trying to get into a house, but then they're getting into these markets where people are buying in cash, fifty grand over asking price or a hundred grand over asking price. Yeah, that that you won't know. last. I mean, it, the problem is your patience runs out faster than the market moves, and so and that's the issue, right? Like if you're if you're uh, you have to be patient here. The market actually for houses did not. Um, it peaked much later than than the you know the the financial crisis. I think it peaked in two thousand ten or two thousand eleven or twelve. I don't even know. I know I know that in two thousand I forget. What, I think it was two thousand fifteen. It bottomed and then started going back up. Like it's a big delay, and so you're coming now into a, a time where like everybody and and everybody bought a house. Like that that's the reason we we don't have inventory. And so that's a big difference with the 2008 crisis is that there was a ton of inventory out there um, and people were more financially stressed. Um, and so they had, you know, even in these wealthy neighbors at that point, they had, there were, there were sales, there were foreclosures and stuff like that. This time around, I, I think, it, and it leads me to believe that you just have to push through and, and say, okay, well, you know, people are bidding crazy. I'm going to be a value investor here and say, these are the parameters I would invest in, like or buy the house. And if they don't meet the parameters, then it is not the right opportunity. Because I know in normal times this is what happens. And so I'm just gonna wait until normal times. The problem most people have is they don't have a capacity to wait because they're renters um, and they're expanding their family and they need to expand where they live and they will be much more financially just you know, it costs more to rent in the long run than to own a house. Um, but it, you, there's a there's a break even point, and I think most people have you know blown through the break even point in terms of like it's unfavorable to own right now. So we have to see. Um, I do think like with interest rates going up, less demand for sure. There is less demand on the high end of the houses, um, and I don't care if the interest rates goes up because I know it's temporary, right? So if I can get two hundred thousand dollars less on on a house, um, you know. I live in New York, so those prices are like, you know, that's 20% or sorry, that's maybe 10% of a house. Um, so if I could get $200,000 less in the house and I'm paying like maybe $1,500 more a month, you know, if you divide that, how many years until I break even, you know, do you think in any of those amounts of years, the interest rates will go down? Like if we're talking about like seven, 10 years for break even, I'm hundred percent sure that in seven or ten years the interest rates will will be will be down. Will you know will be further down than what they are right now. Yeah, exactly. And we kind of talked about it earlier about like you know the macro environment where you view the overall uh, <clears throat> you know interest rates kind of keep increasing and increasing quickly um, to you know kind of uh, you know help fight inflation. And so, do you kind of see that? I guess continuing to go up and, and hurt uh, housing you know, mortgages, like you, it, the, the amount of, I think like interest rates at mortgages now for home buyers that are going to live in the house now are right around like 6%. Uh, actually, I, I was getting into, you know, mortgages and how their uh, personal home mortgages are maybe around five, 6% right now. And we kind of talked earlier in this conversation, uh, you, you know, a little bit about uh, how uh, the Fed is probably going to keep increasing rates at a rapid pace and if they do that, that'll most likely make mortgage rates kind of increase. Do you see that kind of happening? And, uh, you know, 
forcing uh, housing to get a little bit uh, less demand. And uh, be just because like mortgages are going to increase so more so much the amount that, you know, a personal home buyer is going to buy or pay each month. Yeah. So that brings me into another conversation. It's like my, one of my top holdings, which is the, actually my, the home building industry is actually my, if you want to look at it like an industry, it's my top industry. Um, it's like 14% of, or 15% of my investments. Yes. I think less demand. I think what's going to happen is if you look at like the spectrum of houses from like, let's say, you know, 500,000 to uh, 5 million, the entire the entire it's going to shift everybody towards like the less expensive houses right so the five million is going to can only go for like a three and a half the three and a half can only go for up to like two and a half and so who's it going to push out it's going to push out the market that was like at the 500 to maybe six seven hundred because that that's they're going to be pushed out to like the three hundred thousand and they don't want to do that they would rather not buy and rent right or for some reason they just they can't they can't buy anymore they can't buy what they want or what they need. So there's a small sliver, you know, unfortunately it's a large sliver because in terms of population and the amount of aggregate demand, it's a, it's a large percentage of that. The issue is that there's not enough houses. So like the entire like demand curve is going to just shift towards less expensive. And so I don't think the home builders per se, like specifically the public home builders are going to suffer tremendously because they already have a ton of backlog. The prices are higher and so when when a when a person signed the contract, they signed for a specific price. You know, if they renege on the contract, they lose their deposit. And um, now, if they want to go back and buy houses, they're going to be much more expensive. So, from an incentive point of view, yes, the mortgage might be higher a little bit, but they're still buying it at a, at a set price. Now, <clears throat> any future price, any future um, construction, um, there will be less demand, obviously. I just don't think it will be unprofitable um, as, as many, many people say out there. Um, so, you know, from a personal standpoint, I would say, you know, do what's best for you. Um, every market is different. Um, in the investment side, I am confident that the publicly traded home builders will do fine over the cycle compared to 2008. And I think that's where the bias is. There's a ton of bias, you know, against these companies. These companies have, on average, you know, they fall. I think they're they're down forty percent from their highs, um, and they're trading at a very uh, discounted multiple. So it's uh, it's like everybody knows that there's going to be less demand. The question is how much, and I just don't think it's going to be as bad as as people think. Yeah, I got you. Hey, and it makes sense. You're making a lot of valid points there. So now, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about real estate, a little bit about the macro. Let's transition to stock investing. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, you have a little bit more of a background in that. Uh, but, you know, how do you start, uh, you know, like from square one, somebody who, who gets in and is like, you know, looking for a stock or a specific company to start investing in, how do you research a stock? Do you do it more of, you know, industry sector and then kind of go your way in? Or do you kind of, uh, you know, search for companies? Uh, you know, how do you kind of get started in your search there? I I get started through, I mean, I, I, I do more of a top-down, find the themes and then kind of find the best opportunities. It's hard the other way around. Uh, I think it's harder. Um, I do think there is value to um, to researching 
you know, the other way around. The problem is like, how do you generate ideas? So my ideas usually come from like, okay, where are the big macro trends? Where are, the, where are we going? Um, which companies are better positioned to take advantage of those of those trends? That said, though, every year or on a consistent basis, I have a schedule and I will go through every industry. Um, and, you know, they, you know, you have industry and sectors like the ETFs. They have sectors, you know, healthcare, technology. Um, so every sector has a sub-industry. I will go through every industry, maybe one or two industries a week. And I will look who are the, the best players there. Um, I will also look at the industry in general. Like, is this a good industry to be in? Is the pool of profits favorable to this industry? Because there's some industries where like the pool of profits are just not there. They're not like there's super commoditized industry and there's a lot of players and the, the people who are purchasing from these uh, this industry are like few and they have all the power. So like, of course, that's going to be a bad industry to invest in. Um, and so I want to try to avoid those industries and it, but it's, it's a good practice. I would say to just go through every single industry and you like for some industries you won't understand very well. Uh, for example, insurance to me is like super difficult. Um, there's a lot of industry terms. There's a lot of things that are specific to it. So I, I tend to avoid those, but in essence, I have a list of, uh, industries to go through and it takes me about three years to go through all of the industries. So I'm on a three-year cycle there. There we go. All right. So then from an industry, then how do you kind of filter out all the companies? Because if you look at, you know, these specific uh, industries, there could be hundreds, thousands of companies, or there could be a small amount. So how do you kind of filter your way through there and look yeah. at maybe there's a good one to, to invest in from there? So, okay. So I tend to look at revenue growth. There's like, there, there's only a couple of, of drivers of growth. Um, so it's revenue growth and I would say uh, gross margin expansion um, and then overall margins. Right. And then at the end, uh, that's like one component of it. It's like the business operating perspective. And then you have, um, I would say the valuation. So what are you paying for that kind of company? Um, if the multiple is cheap enough uh, and historically I don't, I, I just don't want to pay a high multiple in general um, because I would say a large percentage of your returns will come from multiple expansion um, if the company goes well. And so if you're paying a high multiple, then just you're you're handicapping yourself there. And so I'm I'm trying to you know look at companies that have superior um, performance within that industry, and then I compare it to my existing portfolio whether they're. I mean, some I'm going to put you in. I'm, give you a, like a basic example. It's like Google. Okay. You have, this is the growth they have. This is the multiple you're paying for it. Um, they operate in a monopoly. Like, okay, let's look at companies that are better positioned than Google or like have a better prospect than Google. Um, and, and, and you'll realize that you'll find very few of them. So at the end of the day, it concentrates your investments into, into a fewer, fewer amounts of positions. And that's, you know, the hurdle rate is the poorest, the, the weakest company in my portfolio. Gotcha. And then from there, you know, okay, so you invest in a company, then what kind of makes you, uh, you know, maybe change that thesis? Is there something that you look for specifically, like maybe you think it's value too high, or do you just let it ride once it gets to, you know, a little bit higher of a multiple, and you maybe just don't add to it? Or uh, do you just look at, you know, maybe it's something like in your core thesis based on that company that makes you want to change? The core, well, so um, I would say performance is a big, 
it's a big hurdle or a big motivation why to sell like if you've if you've held, held the company for two years and performance hasn't been there so there's only there's two ways of action here one is that you concentrate more your investment in there um or you sell it out because it, it either it either is like it's performing or not performing and the reason is is because abc or you know bcd right and if it's poorly performing there's a likelihood that you're not right and so you have to accept defeat at some point um you just have to decide when when to when is a, a specific time frame um when to sell those losers i would say i i usually go over that once a year because there's a tax impact on selling them and so it, it's favorable for me to to go in november and say cut my losers and i will reevaluate in a month whether they're still good um the the on on the top end if the company has performed exceedingly well um I will look at multiple. I will look at how many standard deviations are you above the the multiple. To me, that's the key thing. Because if you're growing and the and the stock price is growing, you know from a you know from a point of view, you can continue to grow and the stock price will continue to grow at that rate. Now, if you if if, if the growth was like a hundred percent, nothing changed in the business, um, and the multiple now is like double. If you're paying double the multiple then there, there's reasons to be concerned and so then i will look at that um i usually will say like if you're you know two and a half standard deviations uh, of the multiple of the historic multiple uh cut it <laughs> yeah 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 well that all makes sense all right so we we kind of already mentioned it a little bit earlier but let's go over one of your holdings you talked about um, you know, home builders, and obviously this isn't financial advice or anything like that, but I kind of like to take a dive into one of your holdings. So how did you find, uh, you know, this home builder and what made you want to, uh, you know, pick it as an investment? I, I found, so it came up in one of my screens as one of the, the, the cheapest, uh, in terms of a multiple standpoint and, um, and, from a free cash flow, they're all the home builders are like this. Um, but from a free cash flow f- based on like EV, that that ratio, it, it, they're exceedingly high. Uh, you just have a it's it's kind of a weird. I would say it's it's a weird thesis to hold right now. But you're in a downtrend. It's you're supposed to have peak multiple cycle. So what that means is that multiple should go down in the expect in an expectation that the market will turn. Um, but the difference now with 2008 is that you have investment grade, um, companies that are, they're basically have cleaned up their balance sheet. They don't hold. So what, what used to happen before is that they purchased land issuing debt, right? And so they became highly levered this time around. They're not purchasing the land. They're actually purchasing an option or they, they, they purchase an option to buy the land when they're going to develop it in the future. So they're putting down less capital to use. Um, so they're, they're being way more efficient with the use of the capital. Um, that's a small percentage still of the total cost of building house. At the same time, you look at the backlog now versus 2008, tremendous backlog. Like there's a much higher backlog. It's like a year and a half of, of building. Um, even if you assume, so if you assume the demand falls 50%, you still have like a year left of, of, of cushion. Um, and then on top of that, these home builders 
are, are working at scale. And so if you think about companies not getting labor, like small home and home builders, they can't, they need to work with contractors on a contracting basis. These home builders have people on payroll. They're always shifting around resources where they need them. They can buy wood at a discount compared to the mom and pop store because they can get those discounts. They're at scale. They, they go to the big companies and they purchase wood at scale. Um, there's a ton of advantages that will tell you like, okay, well, if it becomes more difficult to, to build, who's going to go out first, the big home builders or like the mom and pop store, you know, shops. And so that's kind of where on a competitive advantage, I think they're like much better positioned. Now, in terms of of the financials, you know, they're in great shape. Um, margins are super high because home prices are high because they've accelerated much faster than um, the cost of a home buying. Um, so the cost of producing the houses, it, the cost of producing the houses will eventually like come down because all the commodities that go into it, the, the suppliers, the labor and all this other stuff will eventually like they will plateau. Um Margins will be maintained, um, not at the level that we have right now, which is ins insane. We're talking about like twenty-five to thirty percent margin on on a house. That's not that's not okay. Uh, that they will come down. I don't think they're going to come down to ten percent, which was usually the historical level. I think will they will be a little bit higher, uh, at, at least until the backlog gets let's filled. And so you have, and then uh, as as I said before, they're at um, they're peak cycle multiples, which means they're low multiples. So the, the way the cycle works is when you expect the, you know, the, the housing sector to slow down, the market preemptively will start selling out, selling down like these, these home builders. So they get to a, 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 multi, a very low multiple, but taking into consideration future earnings, right? So future earnings, then the multiple would be normal. But that that means that they have to get to a lower lower earnings. I just don't think that 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 will happen. And so as a result, I think you're going to have a multiple expansion once this cycle turns again, um, and then you're going to have again more appreciation from revenue growth. And that's that's my uh, <laughs> that's my thinking about it. In the meantime, I'm just I'm down, you know, forty percent from the highs and suffering. And so that that will be difficult. Uh, it's difficult to swallow. It's difficult to explain to the clients. But once you show the data, you, you look at those numbers, and it's, it's pretty clear um, what's going to happen. It's just that I think it comes down to market psychology. Everybody will react in a certain way, prescribed way, and you have to go against that um, to get better returns. The problem is that it takes some time for the market to assimilate maybe your, your line of thinking if you think you're right, right? Like there's a point where there's an inflection point where the market starts to understand your thesis and starts to, um, I would say, assimilate that into the market consensus. I don't know when that's going to happen. I think that is the art of being a really good investment person is that figuring out when those inflection points are happening and invest you know, before that, right before that, the timing aspect. Um, and so we'll see how long, you know, I can hold this, uh, this investment. But I think at this point, you know, how, how, how much further can they go down? I don't know. I just think that now it's an incredible good deal to buy home builders. Yeah, no, I completely get it. And, you know, that was a great dive into it for sure. But 
Um, you did kind of mention it a little bit, but uh, you know, if it, it doesn't seem like it's 2008, but say we have like a 2008 somewhat crash in the housing market and those uh, margins between there kind of dip from the, you know, what they are right now to maybe like 10% or maybe even less. I don't know. But if, if something like that happens, would it make you, you know, necessarily change your uh, viewpoint on this stock? Or do you think that, uh, you know, in the long run, housing is going to be okay. And so, you know, it's not worth to try to, you know, jump in and out. So I, I think the, the stock could easily assume um, a 50% decrease in margins or a combination of 50%, essentially 50% decrease in profits, right? So like it's a combination and then it would be still fairly priced. Um, and so that's kind of like the cushion you have. Uh, again, backlog is like the key thing. You just have to look at the backlog. How quickly does it dry up? So if it starts drying up very, very quickly, then I get to start, I'm going to start getting concerned, right? So, um, and if I see margins come down, you know, from, I would say 15% is where I think it could, it could go down and the revenues, I don't think they're going to come down dramatically. Um, that again, like if margins come down, it means that price is coming down. If price comes down, then revenues, it's not going to come down at equal amount, right? Like it's, you know, they, they, they're, they're it's a trade-off between margins. I would say price of the house and, and revenues. So do you want to maintain those margins? Then your revenues are going to come down. Do you want to maintain the, and the, uh, the home builders are very good at managing that because they are managing their supply and their inventory. So if their inventory, if, you know, if, you, if you have a lot of inventory, then you want to get rid of that. And so then obviously margins will come down, but in this case, they don't have inventory. So I don't think price is going to come down. They're just going to manage the, the decrease first in backlog They're, that, that is expected, I think, to come down. Um, the question is how fast and how how much before the cycle turns. Gotcha, and this all makes sense. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting time for home builders and stock market in general. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I guess uh, going forward, like, what 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 else? Like, do you do you foresee anything else kind of making you change your a thesis point on there is there anything that you could point to specifically uh, because you know you said you don't think that their margins ne necessarily are going to be affected that much uh, is there something that that you know maybe you're like okay this could happen where, where it would make you change your thesis dramatically and make you get completely out of the home builders um i will watch i think a condition before um uh, backlog decreases is like labor markets like if you start seeing a spike in um, layoffs, that could get me concerned. And like, I would have to look where the layoffs are happening to make sure that there's some areas where the home builders operate mostly like, you know, Florida, Lennar is like, an, you know, within the home building sector, um, I am heavily invested in Lennar. Um, there's reasons why, but I think they're the regions they operate in and management and a couple of other things, I think they're, they're a better operator than some other companies uh, and they have the scale. Um, though that company operates through, they have, they're very strong in, in Florida and Texas and California, right? Um, and a little bit more in the, in the, in the Southeast. And so if those markets start to, start to dry up, then we'll, we'll have issues in that company, but every company has like a focus. So it's, it's more of, figuring out like if, if that focus market is, is going into trouble. Um, 
employment is the big driver. You cannot buy a house these days if you don't have, you know, a W two income or some sort of income, right? That's a condition for the mortgage. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you if something dries up, it, that like in the in the labor markets, it will have a direct impact in in the backlog and as a result, um, in the in the company. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's, that's great. And thank you for going into the dive into that. You know, I really appreciate it. I think it's great for the listeners to kind of see, you know, how somebody like yourself who does it professionally does, uh, it kind of takes a look into, um, not only their holdings, but you know, what, what would make it change and everything like that as well. So, um, on that note, let's, let's, uh, get into my final two questions. So, uh, for people that are kind of just getting started, they're they're seeing a lot of inflation. They're seeing things go up, go down. Um, what advice would you get somebody who is trying to start get started in investing right now? I think I, I think the key thing um, is, is just start putting money as soon as possible into the market. Um, I think on a consistent basis. Inflation will come down. Um, companies usually adapt to inflation pretty well over over the medium term. I wouldn't say the short term; they they probably have some there's some pain. But it, the biggest advice I have for anybody who's investing, starting to invest now, is like the the moments of stress, the moments where like the market is undergoing, you know, severe stress, are the best moments to start investing. So just dump your savings into the market. And if you have a long view, you'll be fine. If you have a short-term view, I, there's not much I can tell you. <laughs> I'm not the oracle here, but I, I I just think that it's it's as there's an old saying this: it's not timing the markets, but rather time in the markets. Uh, I think that holds true um, everywhere. Like that, if you own a house, it's not like timing the right time to own the house. It's just owning it for a long period of time, and things will work out. It will smoothen if you buy the expensive price it will smooth out that mistake. Um, so uh, is that, that's the best advice I, I can give anybody. And the second one I would say is don't get caught up in trends. That's, you know, be very level focused. If, when you're going into a supermarket, you're looking at products and you're seeing like, okay, well, pasta at like 50 bucks, I'm not buying this. Like, this is insane. You have to have some sort of semblance of like, what is the right price to pay, pay for something? And like, you have to establish some sort of system for yourself to say, okay, this is fair. This is not fair. Like, I'm not buying this. This this goes beyond that. You know, that's not fair. I'm not paying for it. Like in a house, you pretty much know um, if you're paying, if all the houses in the neighborhood are going for $200 per square feet, and then suddenly this house is going for 400 and there's not nothing different in that, you know, it's overpriced. It's like very easy. But for some reason that people miss that point when they're investing in, in equities, like in the stock market. Um, they don't know how to value companies. And I think that's the key thing is like, you really have to understand um, what's a fair price. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, you know, the final question here is, so you, you've kind of gone over, you know, just some of the the basics and some like initial advice, what would be like, I guess the next step that you would give somebody. So say like, okay, you know, I've decided I want to, put a little bit of money into the stock market. Like where do I go from here? Where's the next step um, from there? So one of the, the first subscriptions I got was Morningstar. Um, and Morningstar has a, a, 
I think they still have it, but it's like a stock one-on-one investments course. And it's the simplest. It's I look back at it and I'm like, this is like so dumbed down, but it was amazing at the time. It actually got me like really understanding. This was even before like I did banking and stuff. Um, and uh, you, you, I, you could go through it and they explain to you like what ratios are, what this, it's like very simple. Like the, the key thing is like reading uh, material. The problem is, where to start like what level should you start at it it kind of depends where you what education you have in your background but i would say subscription to morningstar is like i would say one of the best things that affected me in terms of my understanding of the market um they do have a very accessible research so that they will actually go through from a value point you know from a value um kind of style they will go through like the key aspects of a company that matter Right. So it's like valuation, uh, stewardship, uh, business, economic modes. What kind of modes do they have? Um, so I, I must have read like initially I was like probably absorbing every single industry, um, every single report that they put out. I was reading it. Um, I would say the second part is ask questions, like get somebody who's actually has a couple of years more of experience and start asking questions like, okay, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Should I do this? And that's the best, like somebody who can guide you what to read. Um, I think one of the first books I loved was the Peter Lynch books. That's my style of investing. Um, I've read other books, but I, I find that type of investing the best one. Um, or the make the one that makes most sense to me, which is um, I, I could summarize this in, in a very easy way. It's like Peter Lynch found business models are replic- replic- replicable, um, scalable, and invested in them when they were kind of small. Um, so whether it was restaurants, uh, hotels, he didn't. I don't think he cared as long as it was like if the mall worked for like two restaurants and it could be expanded across the U.S he would invest in that, right? So like it, it was all growth kind of capital. Um, so that's, yeah, Peter, any of the Peter Lynch books um, would work, but there's like, there's an order of how he wrote them. And I think you should follow that order. Awesome. Well, this is all great stuff. So Gabe, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. Why don't you tell everybody, you know, what you got going on and where to find you? I, I, uh, so beyond returns is where I actually put out most of my work. Um, I do have an investment advisory called wealth habits. The investment arm is called strategic investors. It's a little bit complicated. Don't worry about it. Um, but you can find me there or you can find me at Twitter. I actually respond to anybody who's messaging me as long as I see the message. Um, my, uh, my Twitter handle is Gabriel Kaplan. So very simple. My first name, last name together. Awesome stuff. Well, everybody should go follow him on Twitter and on Common Stock too. If uh, you know everybody there, um, I think your Common Stock's a little different of a handle. Is that correct? Actually, I'm looking at it right now. It's Strategic Investors. I think it's Strategic Investors. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, be sure to follow him on. Uh, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. You're always welcome back. And uh, yeah, it was a great conversation. I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So you know, I really appreciate your time. So thank you. Thank you.